Hello, everyone. Good morning. All right. Well, we'll be in Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 13. Would you agree that there's some things in the Bible that don't easily translate without explanation? One of those is waiting on the Lord. Um, normally, if you say you have to wait, it's a bad thing. At least that's how I feel about waiting quite often. If you're waiting for the shop to open or waiting on hold when you're making a call, it's like I am wasting time. I'm not able to do the thing I really want to do because um, someone's not ready or it's too early. or uh, I'm inconvenienced. That's how waiting can feel. Am I the only one that feels this way? You know, when it's been like an hour and you're singing the Centrelink music or the Medicare music or whatever for the next day, and you hear it and you're like, you know, I heard this Optus music a year ago, but I remember it exactly the same. Like, I feel like I'm wasting time. But waiting for someone is different than what the Bible means by waiting on the Lord. Our primary purpose, one of them, is to seek the Lord, to please the Lord, to glorify Him through our lives. And we do this through waiting on Him. And we do that by prayer, through reading His Word, by obeying Him, through service, through giving. And there's nothing but our own flesh often holding us back from serving Him and glorifying Him because He's given us through Christ everything we need to do that. And we can make the mistake that we're waiting for God or waiting on God because like he's inactive. He's not doing something that we want him to do. We're he's somehow holding us back from what's really important when we need a change of perspective that we need to be active in waiting on the Lord, choosing to obey and to be intentional in seeking him. God created time. I am convinced he does not waste time. He's not in a hurry, nor is he lazy. He is working. We often don't see it, and we have our own plans, our own agendas, but he's doing something, and we can trust him. Can you look back upon your life and think about those long seasons of waiting or uncertainty? But now looking back, you you realize that he was right on time with how he orchestrated the events of your life. I can see that in many places. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are on time, that we can wait on you, that we can seek you, that you have much to show us and to teach us, and you are working, even if we don't see it or recognize it, even if you're not doing the things that we think you should do. Thank you, Lord, that you are a faithful God. You are all wise. You are good and glorious. You're sovereign. You raise up kings and you you depose them. You lift up a nation and you put it down. There's nothing that's too hard for you. And we pray, Lord, that you would uh, fix our eyes upon you today, that we would choose to wait on you, to seek you, to just sit at your feet as we go through these lives, as we are obedient to do the things you've called us to, that we'd hear your voice and walk in obedience. We thank you, Lord, that you are good. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a great psalm. Psalm 27, 13 and 14, uh, David wrote this, and think about 
the consequences or the results of waiting on the Lord. He said, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. He had this expectation to see God's goodness in his life, not just after he went to heaven. He's like, in the land of the living, I'm going to see the goodness of God. God's goodness is going to be revealed to me. And there's a connection between waiting on the Lord and being courageous, being strengthened. He says, God will strengthen your heart. When you wait on him, he will strengthen you. And if we sense in our lives a lack of strength or we see a lack of security, if we are despairing, it may be that we are not waiting on the Lord. We're not seeking him. So if we are waiting on the Lord, courage is ours. Strength is ours because it's his strength upon us. Without God in his sights, David would have lost heart. He said, I would have despaired. I would have given up. And this is a potential for all of us. We can languish when we could thrive. We wait for men rather than waiting on the Lord. We look to others, we look to circumstances, rather than to God's word and the life of Jesus Christ and to say, what would you have me do, my Lord and King? And I believe that a neglect of waiting on the Lord leads to spiritual impotence, which is a lack of power, strength, and vigor, an inability to do the things that God has called us to because we have not waited on him. And this is a, as I've gone through, it's like, Lord, this is a message for me because I need to learn to wait on the Lord, to seek the Lord, to let him set the pace. So we see this in the early church as we read in Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 12. It says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath's day journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication, with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Previously in the chapter, Jesus had promised to send the Holy Spirit who would empower his disciples to be witnesses for him, in Jerusalem, in Samaria, Judea, to all of the world. And then we read of his ascension, where as he's speaking to them, he was raised and a cloud hid him from their sight. And the angel said, men of Galilee, why are you staring into heaven? This same Jesus, the way he left, he's coming again. Unexpectedly, in power, he will return. And before he left, Jesus commanded his disciples to remain in Jerusalem. When he said men of Galilee, it's obvious they don't live in Jerusalem. But in obedience to him, they went back to Jerusalem and they stayed there to wait for the promise of the Father. And they did. We see the remaining 11 disciples minus Judas Iscariot. They returned to an upper room and it was home base while they waited on the Lord. And they weren't just twiddling their thumbs or, uh, you know, just wasting time. How long is this going to take? It says that they were all continuing with one accord in prayer and supplication. Jesus said the promise of the Father is coming not many days from now, but he didn't say in 10 days because that's how long it was. 
10 days between the ascension of Jesus and the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came. So they didn't know how long, but they just spent the time that they had waiting on the Lord in prayer. And supplication is making requests. So they were seeking the Lord, and they were all united in this. So not for an hour, not for a day, but for 10 days, they remained together praying to the Lord. And this extended prayer time was not limited just to the apostles, but there were many others with them. It says the women, I would think Mary Magdalene and some other notable women um, that followed him along the way, as well as the wives of some of the apostles or disciples. And it also talks about Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. This is significant for many reasons. One, it shows that the mother of Jesus was free of any reproach she had previously carried because Jesus spent 30 years of his life before he was revealed to be the Messiah through his power in public ministry. And so for 30 years, people, many of them, probably assumed that Mary had had Jesus out of wedlock and that was really a cause of great shame in their culture. So now she's there with them. She is accepted and seen as a a righteous woman. It also confirms that Mary had other children besides Jesus, that she was not in perpetual virginity. And John 7, 5, it says, at one time, Jesus' own brothers did not believe him. Remember, they said, hey, if you want to prove yourself to the world, why don't you go up to the feast? And they said that because they didn't even believe in him. So it shows that after his resurrection, they did believe on him. They did trust in him, and they gathered together with everyone else in one accord, in one mind, to seek the Lord and to pray that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Reading this had me thinking, well, what priority or place does prayer have in my life? What priority or place does prayer have in your life to seek the Lord? Can you imagine taking a holiday for 10 days with a group of people with the express purpose of prayer, worship, and supplication unto God. Like, frankly, that never has entered my mind that you would, you know, go to Jerusalem like, okay, we're just going to, we're not going to see the sights. We're not going to, we're just going to pray as long as it takes, you know, open-ended vacation, as it were. And I'll tell you, it would be a taxing holiday. It would be a working holiday because prayer is hard work. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. It is hard for us to pray because our bodies would rather be doing many other things. But it's a spiritual discipline, and we bring our bodies under subjection in obedience to the Lord. So we don't pray to to obtain our ends, because I want to get something, but to worship God, to submit ourselves to Him. Ian Bounds, he wrote in his book, Power Through Prayer, He said, what the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organizations or more and novel methods, but men whom the Holy Ghost can use, men of prayer, mighty men in prayer. The Holy Ghost does not flow through methods, but through men. He does not come on machinery, but on men. He does not anoint plans, but men, men of power. So prayer is crucial in us to know the Lord's will, to align ourselves with him. And men and women who trust God, we have, all of us, the opportunity to seek him 
to know him. Notice it wasn't just the apostles who had this. It was the women. It was the, the brothers of Jesus. This whole group of people had this opportunity to come before the Lord together. We have to still our minds and hearts before him to hear his still, small voice. If there's a lot of noise, if there's a lot of static in our lives, if our hearts are not fixed on him, we won't notice him. We won't hear him as we should. Those who have little time for prayer have little means to use God's power. And we don't pray to receive power, but there is a clear connection between those who pray and the power of God displayed in their lives. So we're to pray individually and collectively. We're not just supposed to pray when we gather together, but on your own. And you're not on your own because the Lord is with you. You can enter into his presence at any time. So if you could turn to Philippians chapter 4, 6 and 7, we read of this exhortation or or really a command to pray. We often make the mistake of worrying instead of praying. Telling other people about our concerns rather than casting our cares upon Jesus because he cares for us. I know I at times have been guilty of meeting with people or you know, meeting for prayer and, and spending the lion's share talking about our problems rather than just laying them before the feet of the Lord. Like, we can't help each other with the problems that we're facing, honestly. I can't help anyone with anything. But, you know, the Lord, he's the one who changes hearts. He's the one who spoke the world into existence. It, nothing is hard for him. He can transform lives. He can change the way that I'm thinking. He can alter my perspective for good. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. We can rejoice. We're to give our prayers with thanksgiving, all of them. And it says the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So if we lack the peace of God, we're not fulfilling this scripture. We haven't met the condition to pray, to take our cares. And you may have cast that care before, but cares have a way of like attaching themselves in our hearts. They kind of have tendrils that grab cares and they kind of hold them close. It's like, well, keep casting it. You you gave it to the Lord before, but look, you're worrying about it again. So cast it on the Lord. You get it away from you. Don't just like push it towards him, but cast it. He cares for you. He is able to help. He's the only one who can help. So let your requests be made known to God. It's one thing to let your request be made known to a person who is finite. But if you make your request known to God, he is able to do something about it, to do everything required. Back to Acts 1.15. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples, altogether the number of names was about 120, and said, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part 
in this ministry. During this ten, these 10 days of prayer, Peter stood in the midst of the disciples and he made an announcement. There was about 120 people at the time, which tells me this is a very large upper room, maybe something about this size. There was a lot of people gathered together and he, he asserted the scriptures have been inspired by the Holy Spirit and he discerned by reading the scripture what was to be done with the vacancy that Judas had left. He said the scripture has to be fulfilled. Jesus in John 10.35, he said the scripture cannot be broken. That means it cannot be undone. What, had, what it says is true and will stand. Peter later wrote in 2 Peter 1.20 and 21, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit has authored scripture, and we see fulfillment of the prophecies even in the life of Jesus, right? Him coming, uh, born of a virgin. Uh, and the force of scripture cannot be lessened by the opinions of people. It will stand, and God will see it fulfilled. Even if it seems unlikely, even if it seems unbelievable, know that what God has said he will do. Now, there's a parenthetical statement there in Acts 1, 18 and 19. Now, this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem. So that field is called in their own language, Akel Dama, that is, field of blood. So it's rather gruesome and grisly details that Luke gives us concerning Judas and his ultimate demise, and it graphically shows us the result of unrepentant sin. He was a greedy man. He regretted the fact that he had betrayed Jesus, but there was no repentance in him. If you'll turn in your Bibles, please, to Matthew 27, 3 through 10, we'll see Matthew's account of this incident. Matthew 27, verse 3. So it's a little bit of a flashback. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he, Jesus, had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. And they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Judas feels sorry about what he did. He brings back the money. The priests say, so what, you betrayer? That's your problem. That's not our problem. And he, he just defiantly throws the money down. He is not going to, uh, like, just beside himself. And uh, 
It did not assuage him of any guilt. His guilt remained. Ironically, these hypocrites had no problem giving Judas blood money, but they determined it was unlawful to receive the money into the treasury. Go figure. So they say, well, what do we do with it? We should make it count for something, so we'll buy a field. And they bought the field in Judas' name and to bury strangers in. Maybe they even wanted to distance themselves from even knowing Judas. You know, okay, that can be for strangers, kind of distancing themselves from the whole bloody ordeal. And all that happened was according to God's direction. Don't you find it amazing that the amount of silver, the price given, is written in the scripture, hundreds of years before it happened, and that the money would be spent for this particular purpose, to buy this potter's field called the field of blood. I I find that phenomenal. Just like, how many things could you spend money on? A lot. And how many different prices could possibly be for a life? Many. But it's all written as the Lord directed. Now, an interesting observation is this quote in Matthew. It's found in Zechariah. It's it's in Zechariah 11, 12, and 13. Not Jeremiah. There's a, there's several explanations. Some of the better ones is, uh, that Jeremiah indeed spoke it, but Zechariah wrote it down. They were contemporaries. Perhaps Matthew also referred to the scroll of Jeremiah, which included the minor prophet of Zechariah. And so you would just, uh, it would be common to refer to the major prophet, uh, as a covering of the minor prophets as well. But regardless, the word of God cannot be broken. What was said came to pass. And Peter then followed with quotes from the book of Psalms to confirm that another should take Judas' place. This is a good example for us, that the word of God, written long ago, it's to be used to determine present decisions that we're facing and the actions that we should take. So it's not just something to know. The Bible is something to do. It's something for us to practice in our lives and say, well, Lord, you've spoken to this point. How should I respond? How did Jesus respond? How can I glorify you in this situation? So Acts 1, 20, Peter continuing, For it was written in the book of Psalms, Let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. Therefore, these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John till that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Peter quotes from Psalm 69.25 and Psalm 109.8 as a guide of what they should do next, how God was leading them, what actions to take. And as they waited, the Lord used the scripture to lead them to choose a replacement for Judas. Peter suggested the criteria should be someone who had faithfully followed them all the time of Jesus' ministry from the time that he was baptized by John in the Jordan to seeing as a witness of his ascension, so his resurrection and who had been there till the day Jesus left them. So that shows us that in addition to the 12, there were many others who followed throughout that time but there were two there that met their requirements, as we'll see. Now, there's no scriptural basis for these qualifications. There was no, this is a bit arbitrary in a sense, but it's good what Peter sought to do. 
because having discerned the will of God from the word, he wanted to put it into practice. When God draws our attention to a passage during times of prayer and worship, it's good to, number one, take it personally. We use that quite often saying, well, don't take it personal. You know, you should take the Bible very personally. Always take the Bible personally. It's for you. It's not for those other people. It's for you. It's for them too. But primarily, take it personally. It's God's word to you. And then take steps to see it done. How can you walk in obedience to what God has said to you? Again, you don't need to worry about what other people are doing. You do what the Lord has said. Just like Peter, when he says, well, what will this man do? And Jesus said, what is that to you? What if he abides till I come? You follow me. You be obedient to what I've told you. Know that we cannot fulfill the scripture by our own efforts. To think that we can do for God what only he can do. That like, all right, this is what I want to happen, so I'm going to do all these things to accomplish my end. No, it's God who will get it done. He's going to accomplish it in his time and in his way. Continuing, verse 23, And they proposed to Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. There were two men that met the requirements suggested, and they all were in agreement. Okay, those are good requirements. And there were two chosen, Barsabbas or Basabbas and Matthias. And they prayed to God, trusting that he knew he would give them the right answer. Proverbs 16, 33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. They trusted that God would give them the right choice. We don't know how the lots were cast, but we know that Matthias was chosen. There was no bickering or disagreement. It seemed like they were all united with the result. And I like what Guzik said about the action taken by these believers. It says, The casting of lots may be an imperfect way to discern God's will, but it is much better than the methods many Christians use today. That is, to rely on emotions, to rely on circumstances, or feelings, or carnal desires. So it made me think, what do I rely upon when I'm making a decision? Do I rely upon the Word of God and the leading of the Holy Spirit, or am I more determining my choice on my circumstances or how I feel, what I want? It's good for us to, to really work through that question. What do I look to for guidance when I'm making a decision? And what's the threshold where I start seeking God about something? Do I seek God about something that's a little thing? Or it's like, oh, that's obvious. Or do I really seek him about things that would be considered big or small? Like we may seek the Lord when it comes to relationship issues, but we don't seek the Lord with financial issues. They're quite opposite. Who knows? We, we all have to make decisions that we plan for, and also decisions that are sprung upon us where in an instant we have to choose. So are we quick to seek the Lord in those times? When we're overwhelmed, praise the Lord, he leads us to a rock that is higher than us. 
Some people wonder if Matthias was a true apostle. I think over the years, no small controversy has brewed over opinions whether Matthias should be numbered among the 12 or Saul, or who was later called Paul. If it's like either or, well, I think, you know, this or I think that. Um, as if it has to be one or the other. That's quite often what I've heard. Now, the meaning of the of apostle is simply one who is sent. One who is sent by God. The whole debate is silenced by the scripture, which calls, which says the call to apostleship is not limited to the original 12. We call them apostles for good reason. Jesus called them apostles, this 12 that he chose in Luke 6.13. And for us, it's a very convenient way to know who we're talking about, to make a distinction between the original 12 and other disciples who followed. So, That's just a point of reference for us. Did you know that Jesus is called an apostle? In Hebrews 3.1, it says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. Jesus was sent, wasn't he? He was sent from heaven to man. Luke, the writer of Acts, later in this book, he's one of the original 12. He did not think he was in some exclusive club because he wrote, In Acts 14.14, he refers to both Paul and Barnabas as apostles. When they had healed the the person and and everyone has garlands and they're ready to sacrifice oxen to them, and it says, and the apostles, and he mentions their names, tore their clothes and said, men, what are you doing? So clearly, it's, it's not either or, Matthias or Paul. But the call of an apostle, it extends beyond the twelve. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, And God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, and varieties of tongues. I believe, based on scripture, that God calls apostles today. He sends them out, and it is an important role in the body of Christ. I believe that God is the same today, Yesterday and forever, God does not change. His word does not change. His judgments do not change with the times. I believe the power and gifts of the Holy Spirit are just as needed today as they were early in the church's existence. I believe all spiritual gifts are valid and useful today to glorify God and to edify the body. I see no reason why that should change from Scripture And in the same way, I don't believe the call of an apostle has passed into antiquity. Read what it, hear what it says in Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Those who are sent by God, we often call them missionaries. They've been sent. God has sent them. If we're going to have pastors, evangelists, and teachers, then we must make room for apostles and prophets. Right? We can't just say that, oh yeah, well prophets, that's kind of Old Testament, and apostles, those are just the twelve. No, this is a call. It's a call that God gives to people today, to some in this room, that he is going to send you somewhere to share the gospel, to be a light in a dark place, 
If you believe, so some people would say that, you know, some of the gifts are useful today, some are not so useful or not needed. Well, that seems to be arbitrary based upon scripture. God chooses apostles. God sends apostles, not men. There were plenty of people, even in the New Testament, who, who claimed to be apostles, but were not. We read of that in Revelation 2.2. 2. But just because there's phonies doesn't mean there's not a genuine apostle, someone that God has sent to do a particular work. And so it's not a point of boasting or something to brag about. If you want to read something interesting, read Paul's description of who an apostle is to the world. He says, we're the off-scouring of all things. Really nothing to boast in. The off-scouring. So waiting on the Lord in one accord, in prayer and supplication, it was a necessary time. It was a fruitful time. The word spoken by the Holy Spirit was fulfilled as they worshiped God united in faith. And next week we'll see that at the culmination of these 10 days of praying and seeking the Lord, the Holy Spirit came upon them, he immersed them in his presence, and 3,000 people were added in one day to the church. Can you imagine if even 1,000 people were added to this church? My goodness. We would have to like sit on the floor or something. I don't know. We we just have to do standing room only. Just pack them in. I don't think it's a coincidence that they were first obedient to to do what Jesus said. He said, "Wait in Jerusalem," and the fact they spent that time in prayer in one accord, seeking the Lord, making requests of Him, and then they experienced the power of God through His presence. It's not coincidental that that happened in this way. That's something I want in my life, to have the power of God at work, that he would be ministering through my life for his glory. And then I ask myself, well, what keeps me from waiting on the Lord? What keeps me from waiting on the Lord like that? Where you take a day, you take a night, you take a weekend, you take whatever, you know, an hour. We don't have to be all like, okay, 10 days or, you know, they did 10, let's do 20. Man, let's be humble. Let's be led by the Spirit. But let's seek the Lord. Let's wait on the Lord. I've been convicted. I'm often waiting on the Lord to do something rather than waiting on Him to discern what He wants me to do in His strength. I can look to others to take the lead rather than waiting on the Lord and seeking Him myself. We have to come to a place of surrender to God and obedience to say your plans are better than mine. Your your will is perfect and I am going to seek you and I'm going to wait on you not because I really need an answer to this question but because I'm being obedient to what you've called me to, to wait on the Lord. I feel weak. I am discouraged. So I will wait on you because in you is strength and in you is courage and therefore I will wait and put everything else aside to to hear you and to respond in obedience. And I believe that prayer will prepare our hearts and minds to do all God has purposed for us. Nothing will be undone that he has called us to do. Now, for a point of application, please turn to John 5, starting in verse 1. 
And after we read this, these four first verses, I have a few pictures to show. That's something I love about the Bible. It's like it talks about something, and you can go there. You can actually go to a place that the Bible talks about and see it for yourself. John 5, 1 through 4. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first, after the stirring of the water, was made well of whatever disease he had. So in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, there is a pool called Bethesda. Now this, uh, if you can see that picture, this is the modern-day gate. It's called the Sheep Gate in Hebrew, but the Arabs today call it the Lion's Gate. If you can see those lions here, there's kind of lions on each side, right there and there. Now right inside that gate, you can go to the Pool of Bethesda. If you could give me the next one, please. So you can see down in the bottom there, the foundations, um, first century B.C., so very ancient area. Next one. This is a panorama of uh, some of the, the diggings there, and they, there are five porches. I can't point them all out to you in this picture, but they, they are there, and that's how they because of its relation to the gate, the, the, the age of the site, and how it's laid out. They're like, this is Bethesda. Next. And you can see how deep it is and the steps leading down to it. Because a lot of the stuff on top has been uh, built at a later date. And so this is a very interesting case because in Jerusalem, almost everything is under multiple layers of building. This is the exposed towards the bottom. On the interior, it's it's original stuff. So it's very, very old. Thanks, guys. So the Bethesda means the house of kindness or the house of mercy. It says many people who were sick, blind, lame, and paralyzed were waiting for the moving of the water. And without any explanation, it just says, for at a certain time, it had been known that an angel would stir the water and the first person in would be healed. Some have suggested a naturalistic explanation. They've said, well, you know, there was an aquifer and the water kind of came in, you know, when the rain had been going and people were superstitious and they just thought they could be healed. Well, the scripture doesn't say that. It says that people were healed and the fact that there were all these people gathered around during a feast day shows that they too thought it could happen. They believed it and had likely seen someone healed. So I don't doubt the biblical account. God's able to use many means to heal people physically. Many times uh, in scripture, like Naaman, he's told to dip seven times in the Jordan and he's healed of leprosy, right? You've got a dead man who revived when he his dead body landed on the bones of Elisha. Okay, that's really odd. They... There were people moving this dead body, and they saw some raiders coming. They're like, let's get out of here. And they just chucked the body in. The guy came to life, and that's kind of like spawning in the wrong place. You know, you've just, whoa, the enemy is right on top of me. So he 
He survived, I guess. And, and there were times, even in the New Testament, the shadow of Peter fell across people and they were healed. So it's not, it's, I don't find it completely out of the realm of possibility, especially when God's involved, to heal someone when the water is stirred. The main point is these people believed it. They were all gathered around and waiting for it. And they all had the hope of being in first. So they were fixed on getting in that water. It was all about just get in first. You know, grab someone, move them out of the way, prevent them from getting in, and you get in. You get the blessing. Notice that all these people were without hope of cure. They were diseased. They were blind, paralyzed. There was no doctor who could reverse their condition. There was These were permanent problems they had, and many of them had suffered for a long time. I mean, being paralyzed today, there there are some things that you can do, but really, there's in this day, there was no chance of any treatment whatsoever for your condition. And you think about day after day being there and the hopelessness that would set in. If you were a paralyzed person and you've seen, you know, 10 months ago someone was healed and five months ago someone was healed and heaps of people jumping in, but only one receives the blessing and everyone just goes back to their bed to wait for the moving of the water. I mean, that would be a pretty sad place to live day after day with this hope That was just a fantasy as your life was slipping away. But what else could you do? This was your only hope. This is the only way that you could heal your blindness or or your lameness. And imagine trying to be, you're blind and you're waiting for the water to move. And you can't see the water. Or you're lame and you can't climb to get into the water. So either way, it's like frustration constantly. It's like, I can't, I can't get up to get in, or I can't see it to, to know when to get in. Verse 5, Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. Having come to Jerusalem for a feast, Jesus goes to the pool of Bethesda, where these sick folks are. And there was a sick man who had suffered for 38 years, 38 years of his life. And and Jesus had known he had been there for a long time. He knew everything about the man. He knew who he was. He knew all he had suffered. He knew how long he'd been sick. But he just asked him one question. He says, do you want to be made well? Notice he does not address the question. He doesn't really answer it, does he? In his mind, his only hope was getting in that water. That was the only way that he could be healed. And so, because that was the only way, he thought, well, I need someone to help me. And I don't have anyone to help me, so that's my problem. I need someone to help me get into the water, because then, because I'm too slow. I can't do it on my own. He only saw obstacles to his healing. He was waiting not only for the water, but for a man. He says, I don't have anyone to help me. There's nothing I can do about it. 
You know, he's waiting for the water to be stirred up. He's waiting for someone to help him. He's waiting to be healed. And all the while, just despairing without hope. And he doesn't recognize who's talking to him. Jesus walks up to him. The one who created him. And he could make him well without his ideal conditions being met. Those conditions didn't apply when Jesus walked up to him. And we can be a lot like this man who's perhaps suffered from a condition for a long time or who's been despairing over impotence for a while, a lack of power, a lack of even spiritual strength. But Jesus just says to the man, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Immediately he's made well, he's enabled to do everything that Jesus told him. He didn't even have the ability to roll into the pool at the appropriate time. And here he is standing up, picking up his bed, and walking. Praise the Lord. The presence and power of Jesus showed that the man had been waiting for the wrong thing. He was doing the best he could, but Jesus had healing for him. He had hope in Christ. And Jesus is so grateful, gracious to come to us right where we are today, right in our point of weakness and our impotence. And he addresses us and says, do you want to be made well? We say, well, what about this? What about that? This condition needs to be met. This hasn't changed. And he stands ready to save, to heal. Even when we dodge the question, he has healing. I think unlike the sick man, we don't often recognize our weakness. We don't recognize our need. It was pretty profound and obvious for this man. You know, he couldn't walk. He couldn't, he was paralyzed in some way. I don't know what his sickness was, but it was long and severe. And we may not even recognize what our needs are. Like that man, we can look around to help from others. We can strategize to overcome our own weaknesses and try to find healing in something that can only be found in Jesus. And we can neglect to take our cue from Scripture as Peter did. We can neglect to wait on the Lord. We're just waiting for the movement of the water. We're waiting for something to happen instead of seeking Jesus and saying, Lord, I need to wait on you because you're the only one who can heal me. You're the only one who can change this. And I'm not asking you to change anything about my circumstance. I'm not demanding anything of you, but Lord, heal me today. Are you willing to wait on the Lord? Are you willing to surrender yourself to him? There's a pattern that's shown in Scripture. Many people healed by Jesus did not use their wellness to follow him. They did not use, they did not even bother to thank him. And that seems unbelievable to us, right? Like, whoa, you just, you just got healed and you're turning Jesus into the authorities. You just got healed and you're running off to do your thing and, and you didn't even stop to say thank you. But you know, whenever we see something that we shake our heads at, know that you're looking at a mirror. You're looking right at yourself. We do the same thing. We just don't see it, but may the Lord show us that we need him. We need to wait on him. We need to acknowledge he's the only one who can help us right now, and we want him to. We want to obey. So may our obedience provide proof 
of his power and presence in our lives because that was the proof that day. As that man stood up, as Peter stood before and said, hey guys, look, this is what we need to do. That was proof of God's spirit working among them. He was showing them and guiding them what to do and he united them in his love. So let's let's wait on the Lord, not just today, but continually seeking him and humbling ourselves before him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that you are a healer and that you walk in our midst. You have said where there's two or more gathered in your name, there you are in the midst of them. And we beseech you, Lord, that you would look upon us in our affliction, that we would know what our affliction is, the real affliction, the one that's inside our hearts and in our minds, and and that you would do a healing work, Lord, even in those who have suffered for a long time with something, Thank you that you're able to reverse that completely, that you're able to change us. You're able to empower us to obey you and to do everything that you've commanded us. Lord, show us, convict us when we've been waiting for the wrong things. We've been seeking help in the wrong places. And may we come before you, Lord, trusting you, throwing ourselves upon your mercy and your grace, knowing that you are able to help us in our time of need. Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters here today. I thank you for the promises in your word and for the power of the Holy Spirit who convicts, who helps and guides and leads us into all truth. And we ask that you would fill us to overflowing, Lord, that we would be filled with thanksgiving and praise unto you so our lives would be a testimony of your glory and goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.